You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Like defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Shona. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we are welcoming back Dr. Raquel Innes Shelton to speak with us about myeloma. Dr. Shelton is a hematologist-oncologist, associate professor, and director over at the University of Alabama Multiple Myeloma Clinic. For those listening, we do encourage you to also listen to our other episode we did with Dr. Shelton, in which we spoke about risk factors, diagnosis, symptoms, and treatment of myeloma. Welcome back, doctor. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you back on the Bloodline with LLS. Our last conversation was so good. (laughs) It was. It was a lot of fun. So on this episode, we're going to talk about a few things, but of course, we're going to start with what myeloma actually is. So how would you define that for the listener? Multiple myeloma is a cancer that begins inside of the soft, spongy portion of the bone called the marrow. So what I usually tell patients is everybody has maybe broken a chicken bone in half, and you know there's a soft, spongy portion And that inside of that marrow space is where all your blood formation occurs. And there are many different populations of cells in there. And one population of cells are called a plasma cell. And this is a specialized type of white blood cell that actually starts getting made outside of the marrow. It kind of starts as a young white blood cell, then it goes out to the lymph nodes and it gets educated and then it comes back down to the bone marrow space as a mature antibody producing cells that has a kind of memory capabilities. It kind of looks like a football. It's oblong and it has a very distinct look to it. But for the most part, they stay inside of the bone marrow and all of us have them. About 5% of the cells in the bone marrow are supposed to be plasma cells and they make a variety of different types of antibodies to attack a lot of different types of infections as we go throughout our life. But there's a subset of patients that we don't know what happens, but there's kind of a genetic mistake that occurs and plasma cells become diseased. The genes inside of the plasma cells become broken and they start to multiply abnormally. They don't follow the normal rules of cell persistence or cell death, they just start to grow and divide. And as they do that, 
they can cause trouble. So initially in the beginning, they may divide and overpopulate the marrow space, but maybe not do anything. And this is a, like a precancerous state of myeloma called MGUS, which is monoclonal gammopathy of unspecified significance, which is a big mouthful. And that's why we call it MGUS. And this is something that happens, we think, to older people, although more and more research is coming out that maybe it starts at a younger age. Why it happens, we really don't know why all of a sudden plasma cells start to really kind of go rogue and over-multiply. But it's quoted that about 3% of adults over the age of 60 and maybe now more are walking around with an MGUS. Some will transform to multiple myeloma and some won't. Some will stay at the MGUS state and there's nothing to do for those people right now because we can't identify who will transform to cancer and who won't. The patients that do transform to cancer when we know it's a problem is because the cells don't stop dividing. They continue to divide. And as they continue to divide, they almost have like a life of their own. They want to persist despite the body that they're living in. So they multiply and they activate the cells inside the bone marrow that are like little Pac-Men and just chew, chew, chew their way through the marrow space and allow the plasma cells to divide and divide. And as these plasma cells are moving through the bone marrow, they make the bone very weak and susceptible to fracture with very minimal activity. Activity, like even just like vacuuming a rug, you can break an arm and the bones get that soft and fragile. And the antibodies that come from these plasma cells don't do any good. They don't fight infection. It's not like you get a supercharged immune system. The plasma cells emit these antibodies that really just go through the bloodstream, clog up the bloodstream, get into the kidneys, cause kidney damage. And that's responsible for a lot of the symptoms that are associated with multiple myeloma once it actually happens. So with the weakening of the bones, patients can get bone pains and fractures. And as calcium is emitted from the bones that are broken or fractured, patients can get elevated calcium levels in the blood, which really can cause problems with mentation and almost have patients comatose is very dangerous. And as those antibodies get into the kidneys, the kidney blood vessels are very small and fragile, and these antibodies cause quite a bit of damage inside the kidneys. So some patients with myeloma will have kidney failure and even be on dialysis at the time when they're diagnosed. So there are multiple different genetic disorders or genetic mishaps that can occur to make a plasma cell, I always say make a plasma cell go rogue or get damaged and start to over multiply. So no two patients with myeloma may have the exact same symptoms. No two patients may have the exact same complications. It's like a family of complications or a range of complications that happen based on the abnormal activity of plasma cells in the bone marrow. People often mistake this as a bone cancer. It's not. Those are a totally different class of cancers treated a completely different way. Multiple myeloma, myeloma actually stands for marrow tumor. And the reason why it's called multiple myeloma is because you get multiple marrow tumors all over the marrow space. These cells make new blood vessels and they jump from bone to bone to bone so that they create new space to multiply. 
That's a long answer, but that's what myeloma is. <laughs> no, that's a great answer. But speaking of MGAS, so I'm hearing more and more conversations, just, just going to conferences and hearing doctors speak about MGAS. It seems as if at one point, typically there'd be no treatment for it because like you said, it's kind of in the state where it hasn't been determined to be anything more, you know, than just simply existing in that specific amount. But are doctors approaching MGAS differently, thinking that maybe if they can treat MGUS, even though it's not presenting as anything else, but treating it to prevent it from becoming myeloma in the future? Yeah, currently in this time period, there's no treatment for MGUS because we don't have a clear set of guidelines to define who will convert and who won't. There are certain high-risk features of MGUS that we look out for, but it still doesn't warrant treatment unless a patient is in a clinical trial that will treat patients with high-risk features. So for the most part, the patients who are at high risk of converting may be monitored a little bit more frequently. They may have you know, their blood drawn maybe every three months instead of every six months, and they're going to be monitored a lot more closely to see if there's increase in um, plasma cell activity that will trigger the start of treatment. We all hope that we would be able to find a way to reliably prevent myeloma from occurring, but as it is now, if we were to treat every MGUS person, you would be exposing a lot of people to chemotherapy. And chemotherapy is, you know, it's poison to your cells. You would be exposing a lot of people to chemotherapy that never needed chemotherapy and alter their quality of life inappropriately. So until we can find a set of reliable features that really tell us with good certainty that this patient will convert to myeloma, we have to continue doing a surveillance methods to identify who is converting. And when you watch patients closely like that, you can potentially save them from terrible pathologic fracture, what we call pathologic fractures, a fracture that occurs in a setting that it shouldn't really occur. So if you jump off of Mount Everest or something and go crashing down the side of the mountain, you would expect to break some bones. But if you're, you know, reaching for cereal in the cabinet, your arm shouldn't break, you know. And so these are the kind of things that actually happen to myeloma patients. It sounds outrageous, but it actually, in very common everyday activities of daily living, they will fracture, uh, you know, a significant size bone with minimal effort. So that's what we call pathologic fracture. And so it's associated with not only the cause of the fracture, but also when the, the imaging studies are done, it's clearly identified to be associated with some malignant process. So if you were to identify these patients early and intervene early, you may be able to save them from something, you know, that catastrophic that could impact their quality of life. There's no clear way to know if a patient would live longer if you treated them at the MGUS stage versus if you treated them at an early myeloma stage. That is not completely clear now. There's people that think that this will happen. There's a middle phase of myeloma called a smoldering myeloma where the myeloma activity is increased beyond MGUS but still not quite to the multiple myeloma phase. And the way I describe it to my patients is like a 
pot of water that's on the stove that's simmering but not yet boiling, that's what I think of multiple myeloma. And, you know, whether or not it actually starts to boil depends on the amount of heat under the, the, you know, whether or not you keep the heat on or you turn the heat off. So what factors inside of the bone marrow actually make those plasma cells or within this plasma cell itself make convert to more aggressive behavior that also is an unknown. In the smoldering setting, there are also some features that are considered higher risk, and those are in active clinical trials, and patients are getting pretty aggressive therapy at the smoldering phase to try to prevent conversion to myeloma with the hope that there will have longer survival or die of causes other than myeloma in their older age. You know, everyone does die of something, but the idea is let's not have it be myeloma. So moving on then into treatment for active myeloma, you know, patients these days have so many more options than they did years ago. You have oral medications, you have chemotherapy, bone marrow transplantation. Could you talk a little bit about the, the treatment for multiple myeloma? Right. So multiple myeloma is a challenging malignancy to kill. So when I was a fellow, we used to call the plasma cells kind of like the cockroaches of the bone marrow because they're so hard to kill. We would give all this really aggressive chemotherapy to like our leukemia patients and there'd be no other cell left in the marrow, but you better believe plasma cells would persist. So these cells are part of your normal immune system. They're adaptable. If you go, I tell my patients, if you go to Switzerland and catch a Swiss flu, they learn how to make an antibody to that particular virus and help you fight. And they're there for you throughout your lifetime. So when they become cancers, they don't lose that adaptability and they persist. We have to kill multiple myeloma cells using a lot of different tactics. So we go at it almost like a strategic military attack plan from a lot of different angles. So the way that we handle myeloma is we really kind of starve the cell in its own environment as well as kill the cell in its center. So Typically, patients will get a combination of either two or three drugs all together to cut off the blood supply to the plasma cell itself and manipulate some of the intracellular mechanisms of the cell, some of the inner workings of the the machinery of the cell itself to kind of make it just die off. And with these combinations of medicines, there have been a couple of classes that now are put together and are highly, highly effective of killing a good majority of the cancer cells up front. So the standard of care for patients who are not frail or elderly, and that that definition of frail or elderly is somewhat loose, but there's a general consensus of what that is among clinicians or doctors. Sometimes it's a fine line and it's really hard to decide that, you know, this one 65-year-old may be out in the community and working, but there's another one that may be at home bed bound. And so you have to kind of look at your patient and see what how active they are and how much reserve they have. If they have a side effect, will that really like put them in the hospital? So that's how we really kind of decide or put them in the hospital or worse. 
And so depending on how strong the patient is, we'll offer, you know, the frontline approach is to offer three drugs initially to decrease the amount of cancer cell activity by 50% or more, and then back that up and attack the cancer from a completely different way that it wasn't even expecting by using a stem cell transplant. And we'll probably go through that in a more detail, but if we offer the type of stem cell transplant, the type we offer most commonly uses a patient's own stem cells to replenish the bone marrow after we give them a very high, potent, intense chemotherapy called melphalan. It's a traditional chemotherapy. It's not one of the newer, fancier ones, but it's highly effective, and it's a plasma cell poison. And it was identified in about 1958 to have anamyeloma activity. And so when you give this medicine in high doses, it basically wipes out not only plasma cells, but really it levels the ground inside of the bone marrow. It kills off a bunch of cells in there. But if you just leave patients after that, they can't make blood and that you can't live that way. So we take stem cells, which are the blood forming cells out of the bone marrow first, and we don't physically remove them. We use medicines to make them kind of hop out of the bone marrow into the bloodstream. And then we just pull them right out of the bloodstream and save them and store them in a special freezing type substance. Then we give the patient the chemotherapy and then put the stem cells back in, regrow the bone marrow. And the new bone marrow has less plasma cells than what the patient started with. And then after that, we look again at how much cancer activity is left behind. And if we've done a good job and got rid of a lot of the cancer cells, then what we do is we put patients on a low-dose chemotherapy to kind of maintain a healthy bone marrow environment because even after we do all of this, it's kind of a multi-mode of treatment, even after we do all of this, believe it or not, there's still some of those cockroach-type plasma cells that will persist. And once they get enough chemicals around them that promote their growth, which they emit these chemicals themselves, they'll start to divide again, and that will be a relapse for the patient. So the goal of therapy for myeloma patients right now is control and to maintain a healthy bone marrow environment to delay a relapse of whatever the strongest cells are that are behind from kind of taking root and growing again. Now, the combination, the specific, there's classes of drugs that we use before and after, and a lot of the way that the doctor picks which drug from that particular class is used is based on the patient and the genetics of the cancer cell itself. So when we do a diagnosis, we take a bone marrow biopsy so we can see the cancer itself because that's where it grows. And we put the cells through a process where the DNA inside the cells is broken apart and we can look at specific sequences inside of the DNA and different genetic combinations that are common in myeloma. Some genes may be overproduced some completely absent. And so we have these kind of genetic probes that we put into the DNA mix to light things up. And really in a healthy person, you should, you have one set of, you know, genes from mom and one set of genes from dad. And so each one should have, you know, you should have two of each of the 23 chromosomes. 
but if you have three of one type, that's not right. Or if you're completely missing one, that's not right. Or if one is hooked to another one, that's not right. So that's how we identify how the genes inside of the cell are broken. And that helps us to tailor the treatment to an extent. We would like to be able to tailor it more, but we have just a few guidelines on how to tailor the therapy based on the genes. For the most part, everyone gets beginning therapy. Depending on how strong you are, you may have intensified therapy with a transplant and then maintenance. And then we do, we continue to maintain a healthy environment until relapse. And then the patient is retreated again based on a lot of different factors. So we look at the patient, we look at the disease, and we look at the toxicities um, of the drug. So those are the three features we kind of look at to decide what to treat with next. So I think we mentioned on the last podcast that we have this patient support community. It's an online patient support forum. And some of our myeloma patients, and I actually see this across blood cancers as well, talking about stem cell transplant. And one of the questions that they always seem to bring up is, what can I expect during a transplant? What is it actually like? What can I expect going into the hospital? And then also we see a lot of questions about what can I expect long-term after the transplant? When am I going to start to feel better? When are these side effects going to go away? How long should I expect to experience neuropathy? And, and are there supportive medications for that? So can you go into that a little bit? What can a patient expect when they're actually going through a bone marrow transplant? Well, with the bone marrow transplant, because if it's, it's an intensified therapy, the first thing is the screening. You have to be considered a good candidate. And the first part of the screening is to talk to the doctor. So when you talk to a transplanter, they you know take into account how active you are, what kind of health problems you are, and they do an initial assessment of whether or not you can tolerate a stem cell transplant. And if they think you're strong enough, you'll go through a kind of a pre-transplant planning phase where we look at your organ function, test how strong your heart is, your lungs, and look at particular blood markers that may be associated with increased risk of infection. And so once you're, when you clear all that, you get in the process of the initial step is collecting the stem cells. You get some injections under your skin that seep into the bone marrow and make those stem cells pop out of the bone marrow space. They're called growth factors because they work on different factors inside of the bone marrow that make stem cells evacuate the bone marrow space. When that happens, when those you have like this big exodus of cells out of the bone marrow, the bone marrow is not used to having that high volume of cells come out all at once. So the bones can ache, and we typically give patients pain medicines to get them through that point. We may tell them to take over-the-counter a Zyrtec or Claritin because there's a lot of histamine release that may cause the bones to ache or feel hot or heat, like a deep toothache kind of a pain. But that usually, you know, some people have those symptoms more intense than others. Not everyone experiences that, but some will. That is the relatively easier part of it is just to collect the stem cells and store them and save them so that they're never touched by the chemotherapy. The rest of the body, however, will get the chemotherapy and we infuse the melphalan. It's in pretty quick, like 30 to 60 minutes it's in, and it attaches to DNA inside of bone marrow cells and also what I call innocent bystander cells. So any cell that rapidly divides really kind of gets hit pretty hard by this drug. So the first couple 
couple of days, usually patients don't feel any symptoms at all. By about day three or four, as the bone marrow cells are dying off and the GI tract cells are dying off, patients will start to experience fatigue, nausea, vomiting. The lining of the GI tract kind of sloughs off in a way. It loses its integrity so bacteria can float in and out of places that it normally wouldn't float in and out of. So there's risk for infection. So in our center, we actually hospitalize patients for these transplants and give them IV fluids every day and antibiotics and whatever else they need, anti-nausea medicines, anti-diarrheal medicines. And we really kind of just nurse them through the side effects until the bone marrow recovers. And until the bone marrow recovers, they may need a blood transfusion. There are these little things called platelets that help you clot your blood. They may need platelet transfusion. So we really nurse them through until their bone marrow recovers and all of their mucous membranes start to heal up. But they still will feel tired. Taste buds change. It becomes a challenge to eat. But the thing that is, it always sounds very scary to patients. It sounds horrid to even go through that. But it really is a short period of time to just allow this chemotherapy to do what it needs to do. The gain on the other side is a big gain for a lot of people once we use this intense chemotherapy to kill a lot of the cancer cells. So it's like a little bit of discomfort, like maybe a week and a half of not feeling good. And then, you know, you may gain years of benefit. So once your bone marrow recovers and you can get out of the hospital, there's still more recovering because your taste buds change and you have to get used to eating again. We tell patients it's almost like you're a newborn baby again. You know, they have to get used to the taste, the textures, the smells. They're very, very sensitive, almost like a newborn baby. And it's just a process of recovering eating and eating patterns will change for some people and it's just it's a process but within the first three months most people start to feel a lot better we have a lot of patients who go back to work after their three months three months after transplant depending on what type of work they do but that's you know that's a go back plan for quite a few patients some patients if they're older may take a little bit longer like six months Usually when we have patients a year out from transplant, they'll often tell me they feel better than before they were even diagnosed with their cancer. So that wow. is a very common report that I get. There are some patients that still struggle, but the majority of them do do quite well. Now, the patients who have severely broken genes in the beginning some of these patients may need aggressive therapy even after their transplant. And it's not really clear defined on how to do this. There's some general kind of practice styles that a lot of us agree upon because uh, there's a subset of patients, about 20-30% of myeloma patients that have severely broken genes. And unfortunately, they still have a very short survival even after going through all that I've described for you. So we may be more aggressive with this population of patients, understanding that the status quo of treatment is not going to be good enough or acceptable for them. So there are a variety of different uh, adjustments that we may make to their treatment after transplant that may be different than the majority. Thank you very much for going over that. And I'm sure that our patients appreciate it as well. Mm -hmm. When it comes to transplant, it can be autologous or allogeneic. Would you mind going into detail about what those are and when a doctor might choose one over the other? Autologous means self. So auto means self. 
Allogeneic means different. So allo is different genetics. So allogeneic is when you get a stem cell transplant using somebody else's stem cells, like a brother, sister, or somebody from the donor pool. Autologous is the most commonly used. It does not cure myeloma. It does a very good job at controlling myeloma. We use your own stem cells, and there's nothing medicinal about your stem cells. We don't reprogram them when, you know, before we put them back in the body. They're the same stem cells that are living amongst plasma cells that become disease. So they don't have any new ability to kill the cancer once they get back in the body. The treatment, and the name is a little misleading because you think the treatment is a transplant. The treatment is the intensity therapy, the melphalan that I described. So that really is the treatment. The unfortunate side effect of melphalan is it wipes out bone marrow. So before you give the melphalan, you got to save up some stem cells so that once the melphalan does what it needs to do, you can replenish the bone marrow function. Otherwise, the bone marrow dies off, and that's a fatal condition. So that is what is done, and then more commonly now, we back that up with maintenance chemo. Mm -hmm. The death rate from autologous transplant, if I can speak frankly, is is relatively low. So even though what I described is intense and there's a lot of symptoms, because our screening is so good, we wouldn't put anybody through this treatment if we think they couldn't survive the treatment. The risk of death from an autologous transplant is less than 2%. So we get most patients through an autologous transplant. Allogeneic stem cell transplant, however, has been associated with much more toxicity. It does have the potential to cure myeloma. Roughly maybe about 40% of myeloma patients who go through an allogeneic stem cell transplant may never have a relapse of their myeloma because the new stem cells actually do have more ability to kill myeloma cells more so than the patient's. And the reason why is kind of complex. When myeloma starts to grow, it suppresses the immune system within the person's body. So the the person, they are almost can't fight their own myeloma. Whereas a person who never had myeloma cells in their body, their stem cells won't tolerate abnormal cell growth in the bone marrow. So they're more active against myeloma. But because the genetics are slightly different, then not only is the cancer in the patient that receives an allogeneic stem cell transplant, not only is the cancer at risk for getting attacked, the whole patient is at risk for getting attacked. So the donor stem cells, the white blood cells that come out of those stem cells will look at all tissues as being different than the body that they were born in and can cause something called graft-versus-host disease, which is where the thing that you transplanted in actually attacks the patient instead of helping the patient. So Maybe not instead of, but in addition to, and that's a risk of that procedure. So we don't do it as frequently, even though it has the potential to cure patients, because the risk of toxicity from graft-versus-host disease and death from other causes like overwhelming infection or organ dysfunction is unacceptable in most settings compared to the response that you can get from already FDA approved medicines, especially now in this day and age where after 2015, we really had an explosion of newly available 
myeloma agents and there's so many different combinations that can keep myeloma under control and keep patients living even after multiple relapses that still don't carry that heavy burden of you know risk of toxicity and death compared to an allogeneic transplant. There's some patients that have such resistant disease that that still may be considered the only option, but now and now it's becoming a lot less frequently chosen as a method of disease control. And now we're coming into an era where we're exploring options for modified T-cell therapy, and we have these kind of specialized antibodies that will engage T cells to specifically turn around and notice that there is an abnormal plasma cell next to it and attack it. And we have antibodies that are attached to poisons that are injected directly into plasma cells. And and then uh, everyone is very excited about CAR T cells, which stands for chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy, which is basically we take out T cells, reprogram them, to target specific molecules that align the outside of plasma cells, and then when we put them back in, they're like uh, plasma cell torpedoes. They go directly to the plasma cells and kill them. And so everyone is really excited about those. They've already been approved in leukemia and lymphoma. We're just trying to find out how to make this safe in multiple myeloma. So we think as in general, all these new exciting therapies, and they're even more looking at different pathways inside of the bone marrow that could be cut off to allow the myeloma cell to die. There are a lot of innovative things being discovered that all of these are thought to not have the same kind of price tag as far as toxicity and and risk to your life as an allogeneic transplant. We won't throw it away because, you know, for some people it still is an option, but it's chosen a lot less frequently. Yeah, I'm reading more and more about how the road to a cure, if you will, for multiple myeloma is bringing those immunotherapies into the first-line setting. So I, we, we also get those conversations here about CAR-T where it's, they call our information specialists and they say, hey, it's approved for this and this, or I've read about how well it's doing. You know, give me more information because I want to bring this back to my doctor. You know, So it's definitely something that everybody is very excited about, whether it be on the professional end as well as the patients as well. One other thing I'm reading about is achieving MRD negativity in patients. And that's something that I believe we touched upon in our last episode. But just to mention again, MRD being minimal residual disease, would you mind going into that and and what it means to actually achieve MRD negativity? Yeah, so there are multiple. so, So what minimal residual disease is, is if you can imagine if you can shrink yourself down and imagine being inside of the space of a bone marrow and there are cancer cells in there, what we want is for there to be zero in there. And so the myeloma community is trying to define what is zero or close enough to zero that the disease would never come back because that's a cure. And so when we measure myeloma, we're looking at methods that will pick up enough of the bone marrow cells, like a representation of the bone marrow cells to be able to detect whether or not there's, you know, one cell in a million cells. So it's like a needle in a haystack kind of finder. So what test would be able to find a needle in a haystack if it's there and reliably tell us if it's not there? 
So there are different methods of trying to test this, looking at different molecular sequences that are specific to the myeloma. And the more sensitive you can get, the more reliably you can say, no, 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 I looked in these million cells and there's not even one myeloma cell in there, or I looked in these million cells and there's just one left. So if we can get that particular test to reliably tell us whether or not the marrow is empty or near empty of all cancer, the idea is that this will equate to cure or longer remission or longer survival. And there have been clinical trials that do show that patients that have negativity in our most sensitive tests do have longer remissions and longer survival. But there are several of them, and so the idea is to standardize and figure out which is the best one, which is the best method, how do we use it in our regular daily practice. And there are more clinical trials that are trying to help us answer that question. Can you treat to a point, and then if you test and there's not even one cell in a million, are you done? Can you then just screen? And then if it comes back, do you restart therapy? So it's kind of like a way, hopefully, we'd be able to use that to guide therapy in the future, but it it hasn't become a standard yet. But it's, you know, it's an idea that's cooking, it's in clinical trials, and we anticipate it will happen in the future. Right now, after patients are treated with the pattern that I explained earlier, where they have the initial therapy transplant, then maintenance, there's kind of like no stop point. The maintenance continues, like long term, as long as it's working, we continue it until the disease like that's left behind in the marrow outsmarts the drug and figures out how to grow despite the maintenance. And so for that reason, as it stands right now, um, a good majority of patients with myeloma remain on chemotherapy really for the rest of their life. That's costly, financially costly, and also physically costly to some patients. I mean, there are some patients that chronically live with some side effects of these chemotherapies. There's some patients that have no side effects, which is wonderful because then it's like they just take a cancer pill, like they're taking a high blood pressure medicine pill or a diabetes pill. But then there are some that are, you know, are not that fortunate and do suffer quite a bit. So, you know, part of our role is not only to keep the kill the cancer, but also to help patients live better lives. So when we have the cancer under control, but a patient is miserable, then, you know, we, we've missed our target. You know, we, we're not doing, you know, the best we can for that patient. So we're trying to figure out how to identify when we get to zero or close to zero. And that's what minimal residual disease is all about. And what it means to get to minimal residual disease negative is that you're more close to emptying out the marrow. So this is what we think Mm -hmm. because we only have such sensitive tools and we can't shrink ourselves down microscopically and go in the marrow space and look. And so with the methods that, you know, osmosis Jones type style, but with the methods We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. So you mean osmosis Jones is alive? (laughs) (laughs) But with that thinking, you know, that I think that that's where we want to get to, where we have that test that can reliably get down in that marrow and really say, yes, the marrow is clean. We're good. 
it almost seems like it's it's one big Rubik's cube where there's all these amazing different tests and tools and components, and it's just figuring out how to sequence it all. Absolutely. Dr. Shelton, is there anything that was not mentioned on this episode that you think our listeners need to hear? Well, you know, it just, it always strikes me as interesting is that whenever I get a myeloma patient, many of them have never heard of multiple myeloma. And I just don't know how so many people have heard of leukemia and lymphoma. Like almost everybody's heard of leukemia and lymphoma. But when you say multiple myeloma, they say, I've never heard of that. And so I'm not exactly sure why that is or how, you know, we need to educate patients better on this disease because it's such a unique disease. And, you know, when patients get it, it's so devastating. And it just, it's even more devastating, I feel like, because they never even knew it existed. And as we know, African-Americans get myeloma twice as frequently as patients of European descent. And that's a population that really doesn't know this information. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what you guys are doing is fantastic, adopting myeloma into your platform and just realizing that this is, I don't know if we need to get more brochures out in primary care doctor offices or <laughs> what it is that will really help people know that this exists. And of course, you know, it's not like you'd be surprised to hear breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, you know, that's such common round the table type of, at the dinner table type of discussion, but no one really talks about multiple myeloma. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for coming on our podcast and for everything that you do for myeloma patients and the community. On the topic of You mentioning that African-Americans are more likely to be diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And of course, the science shows that myeloma is the most common hematologic malignancy in African-Americans. But when I hear that, I think about how that may add to the existing apprehension of the healthcare system for many African-Americans and other minority groups. And of course, you think about historical events like the Tuskegee experiment and current day stories about treatment within the healthcare system. Do you see that hesitation from your minority patients when it comes to receiving care? I do. And, you know, a lot of patients, especially those who don't have symptoms, sometimes do feel suspicious right. of what we're telling them. And I wish I could be a fly on the wall in a lot of different oncology centers. I feel like in the patients that I see have the fortunate, I guess, predisposition that I'm able to give them something that is able to put them at ease. And they'll tell me that, that they feel more comfortable after talking to me about what's to happen. And I think it's because I'm sensitive to the apprehension. Right. However, is every oncologist sensitive to the apprehension? Is every bone marrow transplanter sensitive to apprehension? And I think the answer is no. And so therefore... As in, I think across the board in healthcare, the patient-doctor relationship is really a, a golden opportunity to put patients at ease. And I would put the onus on the healthcare system 
to figure mm-hmm. out how to put patients at ease. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we can learn as, as clinicians and realizing that there's this history there and it's a, it's a cultural thing and you may have to approach it a little differently. You may have to, you know, sit down, not talk down and develop that trust. And I think that's our responsibility as healthcare providers. I don't think the patients come in and, and they're the vulnerable ones. Mm-hmm. We're not vulnerable. We're supposed to have a, you know, I don't want to kind of sound self-righteous or, you know, be on a high moral standard high horse, but it is. It's a high moral <laughs> standard that we really need to, to take the responsibility of looking at the patient that we're taking care of and realizing how to engage with them. And that goes across all cultures. Mm -hmm. There are different things that you need to do to make that patient feel at ease and comforted and have faith in the care that you're providing for them. So it is a problem. And that trust will, I think, at times make patients disappear. And they may be labeled as non-adherent but it's uh, that they somehow were not engaged in an appropriate way from whichever side it came from. But I think that's a real tragedy, especially if somebody disappears from the healthcare system because they were afraid or didn't understand. And even after taking time with myeloma patients, it's still a very difficult disease to understand for a lot of people. It's difficult to grasp. Like when you have a cancer in a solid organ, you can imagine that organ and imagine a cancer in it. Multiple myeloma, the marrow space is so big and stuff is flowing all over the place and coming and going. And depending on the educational background and, you know, and it's not a matter of high school or getting to professional school, even even patients who go through a professional school, we're talking about the schools across America, just for example, the way that basic science is taught is different from, you know, county to county, state to state. And so being able to grasp these processes that go in kind of the blood system can be challenging. And so um, I think we need to be aware of that. And once you're in it every day and you've gone to school, you've learned it, you kind of take for granted like it's easy and it's not easy. It's like, you know, you got to start from scratch and let's talk about it step by step. What happens? Absolutely. No, we do. we certainly agree. And I think we're exactly on the same page when it comes to you wonder why people don't know about myeloma because there are resources available. And here at LLS, we have so many free publications about myeloma specifically. And we have programs like the Myeloma Link that we created that connects African-American communities to information, expert care, and support because of studies that show that African-Americans are significantly less likely to receive the newest treatments and combination therapies and more likely to experience treatment delays. So across any culture, across any race, it's definitely the idea that the information is available and and we want to do our part to make sure that people have access to it. So we thank you so much for joining us on this episode and for working and providing such quality care to myeloma patients. Well, thank you again for having me. And I really enjoyed the podcast and I hope it gets out there and helps a lot of people. Yes. Yes, thank you. And anyone listening, if you'd like more information about transplant or myeloma specifically, we encourage you to visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets to either read or order the publications free of charge. And you can also call one of our information specialists at 800-955-4572. 
And we have lots of other resources available too, from online chats, family support groups, first connection program where you can be matched with someone with a similar diagnosis, and also the LLS community, which is our online patient support forum. And all of these resources are listed in the description of this episode at www.thebloodline.org. I am happy to help and talking about myeloma and getting the word out and helping people understand myeloma, that is one of my passions. And so I think that, you know, I'm a big, big advocate of education. And I feel like that is one of the biggest tools that we could give to our patients. And once they're educated about their bodies and what's happening and they can see it and understand it, they can fight better. And so that's what I would like to see more of. So I thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society would like to inform you of PROMISE, a research study to identify, screen, and track individuals at high risk of developing multiple myeloma. The goal of this study is to increase early detection in order to develop new therapies that prevent disease progression and improve survival. To learn more about this study as well as how you can join, call 617-582-8544 or visit www.promisestudy.org. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.